Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rin, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. It's been a big week for us because we've had our first podcast, which has hit over a thousand downloads, which was the one including the Laura Collett interview from a couple of weeks ago. It's really exciting to see the number of listeners growing and do go back and listen to that one with Laura if you haven't already. Our guest today on the podcast is Horse and Hound showing columnist Simon Reynolds, who will be telling us how he came into showing and what he looks for in a top cob. It's got to have the right limb for the right category. A show cob should have the head of a lady and the bum of a cook. For our news roundup, I'll be joined by Horse and Hound news editor Eleanor Jones to fill us in on an important discussion about horse welfare and the overflow which equine charities are constantly fighting. Our dressage editor Polly Bryan will also be telling us all about the NAF Five Star Winter Dressage Championships and I'll be filling you in on what happened at the big international horse trials at Bergen last week. Finally, we're thrilled to welcome supergroom Alan Davies to the podcast for the first time. Alan will be talking about competing in warm weather and making sure horses drink enough in those conditions. I mean, I train ours to take a drink as soon as I've taken the tack off. It's good to try and train them at home to do that, so then when you're at the competition, they will take a drink from a bucket as soon as you get back to the lorry. More from Alan later, but for now, stitch up that final plat and let's get going. Welcome to Horse and Hound's guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor at Horse and Hound. And this week we're joined by show producer and regular columnist, Simon Reynolds. Hi, Simon. Hello there, Alex. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. So Simon is one of the country's top show horse producers. He's based in Lincolnshire with his wife, Natalie, and the pair are known for um, their string of successful show cobs and hunters. And they've won at shows up and down the country at all the big championships, including Horse of the Year show and the Royal International. Simon actually started out on show jumping ponies and he even represented England at age 13 before moving into Korea in the showing world. So Simon, let's just take it back a bit. You started out in the world of show jumping. What kind of early memories do you have of, of your time on ponies? Oh, crikey. I've got a lot of early <laughs> memories. Um, it uh, obviously starting off, my dad was a dealer. So uh, obviously everything we bought uh, was for sale. And really the show jumping side of it, we it was always into his hunting. Uh, I'm the youngest of four kids. So um, we was all horsey because we had to be really because it was like a so-called family business where obviously dad was the captain. He did the buying and selling. And obviously his kids, uh, obviously, you know, uh, all mucked in and uh, and ran the yard and, and, and produced whatever was bought. Uh, my mum obviously was mum and she kept us all washed and cleaned and fed and, <laughs> and things like that. But no, it, it was from a very early age, you know, we was, I can honestly say I, I was sort of like working full time, sort of like from the age of, the age of nine years of age it it was just what it was um so in a lot of ways you know it was a lot different to um how a lot of kids are now sort of thing uh in in coming into this job but regarding the the pony situation uh with my dad he was obviously he enjoyed his hunting and he was also into into team chasing and the show jumping side of it i wasn't really into speed as a kid i got into uh, i got into riding purely because that I was born with a, a, a problem with my hips called Perth disease, where one of my hips wasn't properly formed. So when I came out of plaster, I, I was in plaster for 18 months. 
So, you know, I was incredibly strong uh, from my hips up, but from my hips down, I was very weak. So it was, the specialist said to me, uh, oh, Mr. Reynolds, you're a, you're a horse dealer, aren't you? And he was like, yeah. He says, oh, get your son to ride, but don't buy him a saddle. So it strengthens his legs. So it sort of stemmed from there that, uh, you know, the first week I got bought a pony where I used to go and ride it without a saddle. And then within less than a month, I was going around a, uh, a show jumping track sort of thing, because typical dad, he thought, I, I've got another kid now who um, could probably earn me a few quid here. So uh, <laughs> then straight away then he was he was off buying ponies. And, and obviously, you know, I went down the jumping lines. Yeah. And, and what kind of made you eventually transition into showing? And you've obviously made such a career out of it. When was the turning point for you? When, when did you kind of notice that you might be able to make a career out of um, producing show horses? Well, it was it came on really by accident uh, because I was all, all I wanted to do were jump fences as a kid growing up. And obviously, um, if you looked at one of my old school reports, you know, a lot of the teachers said, Simon Reynolds, who is this boy? Because I literally <laughs> didn't attend school very often. So I wasn't really academically great at school because I didn't spend a lot of time there. I was very good at art and graphic design and stuff like that. But But basically, my heart was always going to be in some sort of an equestrian career. Um, when I left school, I sort of bobbed around for about 12 months, just doing bits and bobs at home with my dad, but not really earning a lot of money. And then I was uh, a friend of my father's asked if he, if I would go down to go and work for him down in the Cotswolds, a man called Neil Simpson. Neil was a dealer and obviously he specialized with the hunting side. I mean, a real big hunting side and, and he was a real big hunting man. Uh, but when I went to go and work for Neil, his wife, Jo, was the feeder and she was the turner-outer. Neil was the buyer and seller. I was the test pilot. I was the one that, <laughs> that, that rode him, you know. And like I say, um, the interest from showing came purely about an accident that obviously through the summer months, I was with him for two seasons, but through the summer months, obviously the hunting side obviously was quiet, but we'd still be dealing and doing bits and bobs, but we'd go to the county shows. Now, I never even looked at showing class uh, growing up in ponies, jumping, because obviously show jumping was completely different, uh, you know, on a different day or a different venue, you know, compared to showing. And then obviously I started to realise and, and take more into account of obviously our horse was structurally put together you know for soundness where in show jumping to be honest as long as he jumped the fence and he left it up that's all that mattered we wasn't bothered whether there was too short in the neck you know as long as they could jump we, we really didn't take a lot of notice about confirmation but when i worked for neil and obviously with the hunting side I started to learn very quickly that obviously if it also had a bad foreleg or even a bad hindleg, you know, it was a structural problem and then the horse wouldn't obviously stay sound. And so you quickly learned, you know, in your pocket, same as obviously from a buying and selling point of view, that um, to buy the right, right animal that was structurally put together. So after I'd finished working for Neil for two years... Uh, I also attended in them two years, I attended Artbury College, where I got obviously all my exams to be an instructor and stuff, uh, which I thought to myself, well, that'll probably stand me in, in good stead, you know, later on, because I got nothing from school to try and get another job. Uh, so when I came back from Neil's, um, I got a phone call from a friend to say that there was a job opening um, working for Lord and Lady Kirkham, uh, who was at Doncaster. 
and they obviously now are the the main obviously backers mm-hmm. for Scott Scott Brash. And um, I went to go and see Lord and Lady Kirkham, and they wanted somebody to be a yard manager, and they had about. A dozen horses, you know, that was obviously just nice horses and, and whatever. And they said, you can obviously do what you want to do with them. And they had a very, very nice grey horse that was actually a shy across thoroughbred. And uh, I started to do uh, working hunters on him. And he was called Brightmore. And uh, John Whitaker had his full brother, who was grey day. So the horse had a, had a bit of jump in him. Mm. And he was my first horse, obviously, that I competed uh, for Lord and Lady Kirkham. And he was just called George, you know, and he was out in the field and he was just classed as just being one of Lord Kirkham's as horses, as, as a hacker, you know, a happy hacker hunter. And obviously I got stuck into into George and fed him properly, worked him properly and he, and he altered in his, in his shape and everything. And uh, we didn't get him qualified for the Horse of the Year show. We qualified for the international, but I didn't get him qualified for the Horse of the Year show, but he did win quite a lot of working hunter classes and it was really nice uh, i got sent a cob then uh from my old owner neil simpson uh called mcguigan and he was a lightweight cob that my dad had actually sold to neil and uh, i qualified mcguigan that year for the horse of the year show so that was my first proper year i suppose yeah. in riding riding in the ring and obviously you've had had so many incredible horses along your career and I'm sure there's still many to come. But are there any kind of cobs or hunters who do stick out from your early days um, in the ring? Any kind of favourites in there? My two favourite uh, show horses that obviously that I did, did very well on um, was the small hunter Sporting Sam. I bought him for Lord and Lady Kirkham out of Gorsebridge Horse Sale in November of 98. And then the following year of 99, he was second at the Royal International and then he won his first Horse of the Year show in 99. He then went on to win the Horse of the Year show four years on the trot, which wow. is a record. There's obviously been small hunters like Small Print that has won Horse of the Year show more times, but they haven't won four years in a row. So he was he was very, very special. And also he was probably the first horse that I was able to refuse an awful lot of money for him because I didn't own him. I was able to refuse it. Had he had been my horse, I think I'd have took the lady in question's arm off the money that she offered <laughs> for him. Uh, he was he would undoubtedly be my you know one of my favorites and my second favorite would obviously have to be the maxi cub Allmark mm-hmm. because again he won the maxis with me four years running which is a record he was the first maxi cub to win at horse year show he'd won horse year show six times in total because he'd won it twice with jack cochran as a lightweight cub and then he was measured out and then one of my owners then bought him so those two would be my my all my all time favourites, um, but uh, you know I, I've got like you know I could say three like the Casanova Cub that my wife Natalie won the Horse of the Year show on three times. I mean he is he is right up there with them too because again I bought him out of Gore's Bridge with my dad, and it was quite funny really when we bought him because uh, he had no breeding, which I suppose a lot of these show cubs don't have breeding. You know, they, they tend to be a bit sort of mongrels, you know. And we bought him and he didn't have a passport, which was quite common in them days. 
And when he uh, when Natalie won uh, three horse of the year shows on him, the man who he came off was a guy called Norman Allen, uh, a, a great guy who lives in Ireland and has a lot to do with the RDS. And um, he said, oh, I'll, I'll give you a passport now, he says, for that little cub. And I said, no, you're all right, Norman. It's, it's easier to write down on the entries, you know, breeding, not known. And he was actually <laughs> by a, a foreign show jumper called Porsche and uh, what Norman Allen stood. And, uh, and, uh, and Porsche has bred a lot of event horses, jumpers and everything. But because he bred this, what Norman called a runt, because uh, Casanova in Gorsbridge, he, you know, at three coming four unbroken, he was hard and sharp, 14-3, mm-hmm. you know, a little stumpy thing, you know, shaped like an house brick. But he had this incredible <laughs> walk and this incredible trot. I mean, it just, it didn't belong to the, the way he was built. You thought, how does that move like that? He was just a complete freak. And we bought him. And uh, like I say, you know, for him to, you know, to buy one in, in the working, in its working clothes, break him and produce him to win three horse of the year shows. That's, that's really special. Really yeah. special. And a lot of these cobs, as you said, you've kind of found them in, in funny places, in sales pens. So what are the kind of key things you would look for um, in a cob in the raw? And kind of how would you go about picking out something which is in the rough? Well, with a show cob, I suppose it's no different to whether you're finding any or any show animal. Uh, you know, there is a, a you know a little bit of luck involved because we all need a little bit of luck. Uh, but the main thing I always look for when I'm looking for a cob, a, it's got to be a cob, first and foremost. So you've got to have that. You've got to have that quality, and you've also got to have the substance. And what I mean by substance is it's got to have the right limb for the right category. Now. Where people tend to go fall a little bit short is, is that, you know, they might get like an ugly small hunter, you know, <laughs> and uh, and think, oh, just take its mane off because it, it, you know, it's a little bit ugly. It's not like a hunter. It's, you know, it's not as quite quality. doesn't mean it's a cob. A cob's foreleg is the first thing that you look at. You know, it's got to have a short cannon bone and it's got to have a nice short pastern and, and like, you know, not, not a lot of sort of handling the pastern. The foot is, is, is another thing that a lot of people tend to be missing nowadays, where obviously when I go and look at a horse, I start from the floor up, a bit like building a house. You know, it's got to have the right foot, what matches the bone and stuff. But the show cob, they always used to say that a show cob should have the head of a lady and the bum of a cook, which is, is nice to have if you can get one with a nice, you know, a pretty head and obviously and, and the right size backside. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've had quite a few cobs that have had, I call them handsome heads, where, you know, they, you wouldn't say got a pretty head, but you wouldn't say they was ugly, you know. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it, you know, the movement is what defines any show animal because, you know, they don't go around the ring with, like, with knee action. Uh, you know, they, they're low to the ground movement and they're ground covering movement. So... You know, a lot of people, we, we get phone calls, we get videos, we get pictures sent to us. People think they've got one. And, you know, there's, there's a there's a massive, there's an ocean's difference between, obviously, what is actually a show cob and what I would call an agricultural cob. Okay. And I don't mean that in a, in a, a disrespective way, is that at the end of the day, yes, it's a nice animal, but even down t- to the air and its coat, it's very mm-hmm. coarse. We use the term when we see something like that, I call them clippers because mm-hmm. you literally have to buy shares in clipper blades because every fortnight you have to clip them all out because their air is very coarse. 
you know, very pig, pig-like, you know, spiky hair, and, and it's very coarse, you know, where a quality animal, you can literally give a horse a hot bath and, and the hair got in the eel, you can snap it off with your finger, you know, it's a nice, and that's a sign of quality. And the other thing is, you know, to feel the, the end of a dock on a horse, you know, when you pull a, a coarse horse's uh, tail, you know, the dock is very thick, like as thick at the bottom as it is at the top. I mean, it's just like a, a pickaxe handle where you get a like a quality animal. When you get down to where you finish pulling the tail, you know, it's gone thin and wispy. It's quality. And, and the beautiful thing about the cobs is that they have, you know, sometimes quite quirky personalities. That is the, uh, the, the probably the main thing where a lot of people go wrong with cobs is that they they don't understand them. You, you've got to sort of um, make a friend of them. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're different. They are different compared to, to most show animals. Brilliant. Well, Simon, this has been so great and some really great tips for people to take home there if they're possibly on the lookout for their next superstar cob. We'll um, look forward to following uh, your team for the rest of the season. And we also look forward to reading your column in this week's issue. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. I'm joined today by our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our dressage editor, Polly Bryan. Hello, Polly. Hi. Eleanor, you were at a show this weekend with your horses, weren't you? Yeah, it was all a bit uh, interesting. I probably should have jumped my big mare in her new saddle before I took her to a show. Um, She obviously liked it a lot and was giving everything what felt like about two feet. So I was nearly being jumped off (laughs) all over the place. And then the other mare did a bit of an unscheduled jump out of the warm-up ring which wasn't oh. entirely planned. <laughs> <laughs> you were the person that was like the drama of the show. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, my friend was by the ring waiting to go in and she heard, someone's jumped out of the warm-up arena on the radio and that was me. <laughs> oh, no. There was a loose uh, skewbald horse in the dressage warm-up at Burgeon last weekend. I mean, I think mm. if you're going to fall off your horse in the dressage warm-up, it's not ideal if it's skewbald because then it's like really conspicuous <laughs> and you can't pretend it wasn't you. <laughs> Well, I was on a grey, so nearly as bad. Oh, dear. But hopefully no ill effects for horse or rider. No, she went then straight in and jumped a lovely round and only had one fence down, which was my fault. Oh, she it was just the warm-up she needed, in fact, as it turns out. <laughs> Great. Um, Polly, I'm not going to ask you right now what you've been up to, because I know that you and I were both out reporting at big events last week, which was very exciting for both of us. We're going to chat about that later, but we're going to start with Eleanor and talking about the important subject of horse welfare and specifically horses being neglected, abandoned, found in horrific condition and in horrific conditions. Eleanor, what has been the spur for, for this story coming up again? now at this juncture so this came from the rspca um arranged this first lead the debate discussion uh which they wanted to bring together quote thought leaders on on prominent topics affecting animal welfare and this one was about the equine crisis and its possible worsening because of a probable recession and this was last wednesday it happened by zoom and it was really good to be involved and who was on that call and how did the debate sort of sort of work over zoom so as well as me, there was um, the RSPCA chief executive, Chris Sherwood. There was the journalist, Victoria Derbyshire, 
Deborah Meaden, who has been on Dragon's Den and has horses, and the National Equine Welfare Council Chairman Nicholas de Brewer, and uh, the Elise Pilkington Charitable Trust trustee Claire Gordon, who's also Chief World Horse Welfare Field Officer, and RSPCA Inspector Kirsty Whitnall, and me. And also, uh, slightly, they said they welcomed animals, so we also met uh, Chris Sherwood's Cat Marmalade, and my terrier Charlie joined in the debate too. Excellent. I hope Charlie was quiet or had something useful to add to the conversation. <laughs> but I imagine it was a, a wide ranging conversation that covered probably quite a lot of, of different topics in terms of sort of cause and effect around this crisis, although we'll get on to talking about the fact that maybe crisis isn't the right word. But what were the main points covered in the conversation? So it was it sort of started off with how this equine crisis came about. There was obviously the recession, the financial crash in 2008 and how after that, there just became so many horses dumped. You know, we've all seen the horrific stories, the horses that are just, you know, they're dumped ill, they're sick, they're found tied to trees, and it's awful. We've all seen it. And the sort of the, the talk was, what can we do about this, basically, because this is this is not good the charity is a capacity nick actually made the the comparison of the situation as a bath with the the bath being the charity's capacity and the plug hole being the horses that are successfully rehomed and saying but we need to turn the taps off Mm, so we really need to stop pouring these poor horses into these mm. charities, which are already most of them at capacity or above capacity. And we talk about the horse crisis whenever these stories come up at Horse and Hound, Eleanor. But it seems like crisis isn't really the right word anymore because this is such an ongoing situation. Yeah, and, and Rowley, oh, as the World Horse Welfare Chief Executive have said before, we can't keep calling this a crisis because it's the new normal. And Claire Gordon said the same thing, that it's more, you know, we've been in this over a decade now and it's systemic and we need to look at where we're failing horses and understand why this is so so that we can then try to start fixing it and how do we start fixing it are there any solutions well obviously that's the big question um it was agreed that to understand why this is a thing is is the most important thing Obviously, there are things like overbreeding um, and one very interesting point Claire Gordon made because she the, the charitable trust that she is a trustee of funds equine welfare uh, charities and charities for older people. And of course, there is an issue that if owners are getting frailer and less able to care for their horses, there can be um, there can be an issue there. But education and human behavior change is is massive, as Chris Sherwood said. This actually isn't even a horse crisis, whether it's a crisis or not, it's not a horse crisis because the horses aren't doing anything wrong. It's a horse owner crisis. And that's who we have to get to. And are there any sort of specific actions to, to, to come out of the debate in terms of what's going to happen next? Um, so the narrative has to change. It has it has been agreed and possibly a new name, not just because, as we said, you, you may not be able to call it a crisis anymore, but to sort of put a name on something and as a way to to get people to notice it and realize that it has to change but um obviously mr sherwood said as well part of the issue is that the government has to take some responsibility and of course it's been difficult because local authorities have a uh, responsibility to enforce 
some things, but with resources being cut, that's an issue. Um, but he's saying a, make, a much greater focus is needed on prevention and getting the message out, because obviously it's better if you can stop the horses getting into that situation than helping them afterwards. Yeah, definitely. And and we all know that these can be quite distressing stories to cover when horses are in these terrible situations and, you know, maybe very thin, overgrown hooves, all kinds of problems and, and sad situations they can end up in. So I really hope that this can be the start of, of something better for, for horses and, and that things can improve, Eleanor. Thank you so much for, for telling us about that important debate and, and giving us an idea of, of how things might change in the future. We're on to brighter topics next and we're coming over to you, Polly. When we first started talking about having a horse and hand podcast, and it's one of those topics we've been rumbling around with for a long time, <laughs> I always imagined that this news segment would not only encompass our, our news team, Eleanor's team, but also very much our sport team and the reports that we do, the big events that we go to. I thought that, you know, we might preview badminton the week before badminton. And then, of course, and that our sort of news segment on the podcast would take in those events. And then, of course, we decided to launch a podcast during lockdown when there were no events so <laughs> we've been quite hardcore on the uh, on, on the news side but less so on events but um you were out reporting last week at the NAF five-star winter dressage championships Polly how was your week there oh it was so lovely to be out it was actually the first time I have worked anywhere but my living room table since the start of March so it did feel a little bit strange uh but I actually realized that what was quite strange was that it didn't feel that strange it felt sort of you know normal new normal yeah it's 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 interesting isn't it how actually getting back to your old life feels surprisingly unchanged in a, in a funny way and in what way were the championships different to normal there must have been a fair few changes in place to account for COVID-19 there were there were lots of things that were different um and I mean I just have to say a massive well done and thank you to British Dresser Show Direct Hartbury they worked some miracles bringing that together in just a matter of weeks really and they did a really really good job everyone there was so happy to be out so pleased to be back at a championship things were different yes nobody really minded one of the things I really noticed was that there were actually just far fewer people milling around fewer people that you stop and say hi to compared to normal the championships were run behind closed doors they weren't open to the public that wasn't really what made the difference all the competitors were out on the Hartbury Bank sporting each other watching each other's tests but it was the fact that there were obviously restrictions on the number of people who could accompany each rider and that just meant there were fewer humans on site which obviously was the point um, but it still made for a really special atmosphere. We would not, at the Winter Championships, ordinarily, a lot of the higher level tests in particular would take place in the indoor arena. And riders always report that that's a really special arena to ride in. There's a lot of atmosphere. And this year, all the classes were outside. And it did give the event a different feel. It certainly felt less wintry, although that might be because all the trees were green. But the organisers struck a really good balance between dressing the arenas for a championship and making it really feel like a big occasion, but also not making them too spooky because one of the other big changes there for riders was that there were no arena walks mm, and that's something we're used to having in dressage is the horses get a chance to to get into the arena and, and that didn't happen this time and tell us about the prize givings as well that they were a bit different they were they were a bit different uh ordinarily we would have lovely mounted prize givings the top three in every championship would enjoy their lap of honor the winner would get to 
counter round in their winner's rug. And that's a really, really special moment for, for winners. And it's a really big deal. And so not having that certainly did feel different. But BD's Winnie Murphy did an amazing job of making the unmounted socially distanced prize givings feel as special as possible for the winners. And, you know, we had all the normal great prizes from the class sponsors, the rugs, the lovely rosettes. And there were a few riders, I'm thinking in particular of Alice Oppenheimer here, who decided that not having a horse present was no reason at all not to do a lap of honour wearing a winner's rug. So she drapes it around her shoulders like a cape and everybody loved it. Well, good for Alice Oppenheimer. I really like her spirit in doing that. And as everyone will see on the cover of this week's Horse and Hand, we did manage to get a rug shot for our cover of, uh, of one of the big winners. And uh, that obviously shoot was done away from Hartbury, set up separately later in the week with, with Kevin Sparrow and the rider. So going to extra lengths there to make sure we still get our, our special rug shot for the cover. But talking of big winners, Polly, who were the big winners last week? Well, it was amazing to see Danny Morgan winning the really big title here, the Inter One Championship. Danny is a real rising star of the dressage scene and he is such a lovely guy. It's really hard to believe as well that he only took up pure dressage in 2016. Before that, he was an eventer and he does still event as well, although his main focus nowadays is the dressage. His horse here that he won on Knox's Figaro looks really, really exciting for the future. One of the other winners who I think everybody was very pleased for was Jane Turney who won the PSG class on her pony cruise he's the first pony to win this title and Jane was so emotional in her prize giving there were lots and lots of tears and that was one of the things that I really took away from the championship it might have been different and the prize givings were very different to what we are used to but it didn't take away from the emotion and you know we still saw riders with tears in their eyes and the only thing that was very difficult was not being able to give them a hug but Jane and Cruz are an amazing combination they train with Charlotte Dujardin who is Jane's very good friend Charlotte until recently also owned a share in the pony and it was just a lovely story and a really really lovely highlight of the week and so those were the sort of the top two classes and the stories there what other tales did you enjoy reporting on during the week Oh, there's so many. At these championships, there are a lot of winners, but every single one of them is always really, really special. I think the highlight for me and probably for for some other people as well was the winner of the medium gold freestyle, which, I mean, it could not have been a more fitting win for the lovely grey mare Corona S and her rider Claire Knowles. It was a very well-deserved win. They put in a wonderful performance and it was a lovely story name aside because actually Corona, was uh, a bit tricky at the championships last year both the national championships last year summer and winter and finished way down the order and so to come out here and finish top of the leaderboard in a really hot class was amazing the the straight medium gold is also always a really exciting competition you always see several of the top riders showing off their upcoming horses it was incredibly close this year I think the top three were all within about one percent of each other Callum Whitworth and Horton's Barolo edged the win over over Judy Harvey but the horse I was the most excited about was actually Freeman the ride of Hannah Biggs who was very very close third it was bucketing down with rain during this class and Freeman did have a couple of little blips but the quality of his work was outstanding and I'm just really excited to see where he can go 
great to hear those stories, Polly, and to know who really caught your eye. And of course, I was out reporting last week too. I went all the way up to Northumberland, to Burgham. It was the first international horse trials of the restarted season in Britain. And the sport there was just incredible. I mean, when you looked at the podiums, they could have been the podiums at, at five stars in the, um, the four-star short classes. And the horses that were there, the quality of horse flesh on display was amazing. You, you know, I, I'm not a big one for watching five days worth of dressage, but I will watch all the dressage at a five star. And I was almost as gripped at Burgeon by watching those couple of days of dressage. And it really had the big event feel. Like, like you were just saying, Polly, about Hartbury. You know, Burgeon had a really smart main arena. They had flags around it and with sort of owners and other riders watching. There was a good atmosphere, even though, again, obviously there were no spectators. It was behind closed doors. The big winners there were Oliver Townend, who won an incredible four of the seven international classes, which is a record, the most international classes a rider's ever won over one weekend. He won one of the four-star classes on Ballamore class. Um, and the other four-star short class went to our world champion, Ros Cantor and All-Star B. So those two horses, absolutely top-notch horses we very likely would have seen in Tokyo this summer had the games gone ahead. And it was just fantastic to see them both out last weekend. It sounds as though the standard was incredibly high, Pippa, and that's without horses and riders having had runs this year. How did the eventers get up to that level with without their normal sorts of preparations? Yeah, it's really interesting, Polly. I think one of the things that came out of the foot and mouth year way back in 2001 was how little preparation experienced horses actually need. Um, there were riders in that year who took experienced horses over to Kentucky and ran them in the, the four star as it was then there without even having a prep run. And, and some of those British horses went extremely well that year. So I think that maybe made riders realign their thinking on how much preparation was needed. And both Ballamore Class and All-Star B had just one run in advance of going to Burgeon, um, you know, in sort of this restarted season, having had a break and, and went extremely well. Oliver was at pains to, to sort of say that, that his horse certainly wasn't at peak fitness and he didn't push him cross country, but he was still fast enough to win. And I think those experienced horses, they fit an up quickly as well horses that have been fit get fit quicker than horses that are getting fit for the first time and it's interesting now as well to to look at where we go from here oliver said that balamore class and cooley masterclass who would at this stage be his front runners for tokyo rides will not do a three-day event this year they won't do a long format class but the rest of his horses might if the right class comes up for them uh, ros said that all-star b will come out again but she's not sure where she hasn't ruled out poe but that wouldn't be a definite for him. Um, it's interesting looking at everyone's different tactics in terms of what their horses need, what they need to do to be selected, and obviously looking at horses at different ages and stages and how this year has, has sort of affected them. It's really interesting. And a lot of the dressage riders that I spoke to last week were, were actually staying incredibly open-minded uh, when it came to their plans about the winter. Obviously, we don't know how the next few months will unfold with COVID. And everyone seemed a lot more a lot more at ease with not having definite solid plans in place. And they were all just going to go with the flow. Was that, was that the impression you got from the eventers? Yeah, I think so. I think we've all learned it's not worth planning too far in advance. Certainly at the start of lockdown, I was getting stressed about things. And then I realised it wasn't worth planning a month in advance because everything would be different by then. So it was better just to roll with the flow. And yes, I did have that impression from the eventers that no one was really saying, I have to do this, I have to do that. People were saying, well, I'll have the horses ready and I'll, I'll have them in a situation where I can get them ready if the right big event comes up. But if they don't do a lot more this year, it's fine. And I did think that maybe sort of some horses, Burgeon 
was sort of going to be the peak of their season. They came out, they proved their point, they went well, they proved their fit and, and maybe they don't have to do a great amount more this year. And what COVID measures were in place there just to compare the two events that we've been to. For example, I didn't, I wasn't required to wear a mask on site as long as I kept my distance from, you know, everybody else. But I think you did have to wear a mask, didn't you? Yeah, so this was an FEI event and the FEI are strongly recommending that that masks are worn on site at FEI events. And so, yes, I did wear a mask for four days, basically. Wow. and it's something that takes some getting used to. Um, I wore a, a homemade mask or, or a series of homemade masks that my mum had been kind enough to make for me. She she saw which way the wind was blowing a long time ago and uh, sent uh, both me and my husband eight masks each. Which was uh, my mum did the same. <laughs> <laughs> they go in the washing machine. So yeah, clean mask each day. And I I didn't actually find it too bad. I think I'm, I'm fairly tolerant of that sort of thing. There was one point where I tried to run off somewhere and realised that you can't really run and breathe hard in a mask because that's unpleasant. Um, but I was did find I could walk around the course in it if I didn't sort of go too fast. Obviously had to take it off for eating and drinking, which was necessary when I was on site for sort of eight ten hours each day but just made sure I kept my distance from people while I was doing that and we sort of had I think an increasing compliance through the week as more and more people got on board and you know I think a lot of when people weren't wearing them which wasn't a lot of the time but when it did happen it was because of forgetfulness rather than stubbornness and just getting into the habit really but you know there was a good level of compliance and it's something something we've got to get used to and to doing it right as well I saw so many people Polly approaching somebody while wearing a mask and then pulling down the mask to start a conversation that is the exact point you need to be wearing a mask when you are having a face-to-face conversation so if you're wearing a mask don't pull it down to start a conversation keep it on is my my top tip and also wear it over your nose as well as over your mouth Yeah, I have definitely seen a lot of people pulling their masks down and slightly rolling my eyes because I feel it defeats the point. But I do have to ask, because I really hope I'm not the only one. Did you feel as though you had slightly, very briefly lost the ability to quickly write notes and do shorthand when you first went out reporting? Because having done all of my interviewing over the phone for the past few months, I realised that suddenly I couldn't write with my hands quite as quickly as I could in February. Luckily, it did come back pretty fast, though. Yeah, that was definitely a factor because I think like you, when I'm doing phone interviews, I take notes straight onto my computer and I've always typed faster than I write anyway. But yes, the first day I was interviewing Izzy Taylor and um, yeah, I almost felt like physically my hand had stiffened up and I needed to do some kind of warm up exercise before I started taking notes. So yes, that was <laughs> that was definitely a factor, but I think I got back into it by the last day. One thing just on the, on the COVID rules that I thought was a really good point, there's another news story. Uh, in this week's Horse and Hound about the team chasing season getting up and running again. And they've obviously been talking about their COVID compliant measures. And one organiser made the point that actually riders sort of seem to be the people that are aware of biosecurity and the avoidance, you know, the need to avoid contamination. And so actually it's almost more second nature possibly for us than maybe the general public to think about these things. Mm, that's interesting, both from a disease point of view with horses and I guess also sort of doping control that we're very used mm. to having to, to do that right in top competition yards. That's a really interesting point, Eleanor, that maybe we've been practising for COVID all our lives in horses. <laughs> well, Polly, Eleanor, it's been great to chat to you as always. Thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, we'll, we'll be back next week with more news, more stories and getting out to more competitions later in the season as well. Bye, Polly. Bye. And bye to you too, Eleanor. Bye. Now on the podcast, we'll be going over to Alan Davies, a new expert for us, 
Alan is a super groom. He works for Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin. And what Alan doesn't know about taking care of competition horses probably really isn't worth knowing. We caught up with Alan while he was out on the yard to pick up some of his top tips. So in this episode, we're going to talk about competing in the heat. Quite topical subject at the moment. We've had some major heat waves um, all over the country. And after lockdown, we're getting back to competing now. So the first thing to consider would be as you arrive at the venue to get the horse probably off the lorry and walk them around, check the temperature, you know, even take a thermometer with you. And if they're hot and maybe breaking out in the sweat, make sure you actually wash them off before you even do anything else. Give them a nice cool wash down, scrape off and a walk down and then maybe put them back on the lorry so you can get them ready, get yourself ready. And maybe think about changing the warm-up, you know, if uh, maybe give them less time in the warm-up um, so they don't get so tired or maybe more walk breaks. I will go into the warm-up with a bucket and a sponge and some cold water um, and I will wet down their neck and between their back legs and under their bellies. Um, but make sure you then scrape and then have a towel with you so you can dry them and you can dry the rider's reins because um, there's going to be nothing worse than having uh, wet reins so I, you don't want to get any water near the um, rider or anything because they don't want to get wet. So keep an eye on your horse's breathing. If they, they're starting to get stressed in heat, they tend to blow a little so you need to make sure they're not um, hyper blowing. Um, and then when you've finished a competition, make sure you walk them off for a good long time, check their breathing, make sure they stop blowing, get cold water on them as quickly as possible afterwards, you know, even with the rider still on. Um, as soon as Carl and Charlotte come out of the ring, I usually get some cold water on their neck um, and then let them go for a nice long walk on a loose rein to chill out, then get them untacked and get some um, cold water on straight away after that. Um, I mean, the major championships like uh, in Tryon at the World Games two years ago, we had really high humidity. So we had ice water waiting for the horses back at the stables when they finished competing. And it's surprising how quickly you can get their temperature down. Delicato, his temperature went up to nearly 40 after his test. We got him down within 15 minutes with ice water, ice water, scrape, scrape, ice water, ice water. Um, and uh, freestyle, her temperature didn't go as high, but she took a little bit longer to get her temperature down um, and get them drinking too, get them to have a drink. I mean, I try and train ours here at home in the summer to take a drink as soon as I've taken the tack off um, to offer them a, a bucket of water and get them to have a good drink. Um, as quickly as possible. And it's, it's good to try and train them at home to do that. So then when you're at the competition, um, they will take a drink from a bucket um, straight away as soon as you've, you've got the tack off, as soon as you get back to the lorry, get some cold water on them and um, get them to have a cold drink. So yeah, there's, there's lots to think about there. Um, and it's just common sense really. So I hope that's helped. Thank you, Alan. And next week, Alan will be filling us in on how to manage horses best when undertaking long lorry journeys. We'll also be speaking to William Foxpit about his six Burley wins, because of course, it should have been Burley next week had it not been for COVID-19. We'll also be bringing you all the latest news as usual. Thank you for joining us today, and please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. 
Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.